0: Hello everyone, my name is Manju Varma and this is my podcast, Talking Racism, Parlant Racisme. In October 2021, I was appointed as New Brunswick's first Commissioner on Systemic Racism. Rumor has it that this is the first of its kind in Canada, so kudos to the Government of New Brunswick. Working with others is key to this position, so I created this podcast as a way to share updates and engage citizens in conversation about racism. Bonjour à tous, je m'appelle Manju Varma et voici mon podcast Talking Racism, Parlant Racisme. En octobre 2021, j'ai été nommée au poste de premier commissionnaire au racisme systémique du Nouveau-Brunswick. La collaboration de d'autres personnes est essentielle pour ce poste, donc j'ai créé ce podcast comme un moyen de partager les mises en jour et d'engager les citoyennes dans des conversations sur l'arisme. We are entering our fourth month of a year-long mandate, and we have been busy. Some of it has been expected, such as meeting with provincial ministers, but what has been the most compelling is the individuals who have reached out to share their stories of success, barriers, and sadly, overt racism. I've also had the pleasure of speaking with fellow social justice advocates and learn more about the amazing work that they are doing. Depuis octobre, j'ai rencontre différents ministères afin de discuter des structures de leur département. J'ai également été contacté par des dizaines de personnes qui m'ont fait part de leur histoire de succès, des obstacles et, malheureusement, des racismes over. Aussi, j'ai eu le plaisir de parler avec des collègues de la justice sociale et de prendre le travail extraordinaire qu'ils font. Aujourd'hui, j'ai un invité très spécial. Je suis très heureuse de annoncer que le Dr Mandela est présent avec moi. Today my guest is so special I can barely contain myself. We are going to have the pleasure of listening to Dr. Mandela, who is also known as Madiba Mandela, and who is the great-grandson of Nelson Mandela. So, bonjour, hello, uh, Dr. Mandela. Uh, Why don't you tell us a bit about yourselves? I'm so excited.
1: Um, Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Verma. Uh, It's been a pleasure to join you on this platform to engage on such pertinent issues. Well, I'm speaking to you, Doc, uh, uh, located in, in the eastern side of South Africa. I am one uh, that is very much passionate about issues of social justice, uh, human rights, peace, and reconciliation. For me, this is part and parcel of continuing Nelson Mandela's legacy uh, as a humanitarian, as a human rights activist as well. I, I am currently uh, working for Journalists for Human Rights, which is, uh, Dr. Verma, a Canadian international media development NGO, which is for, works in an intersection be, uh, uh, between human rights advocacy and media development. We work in different parts of the African continent. I manage uh East and Southern Africa regions where we support journalists to uh, produce human rights related stories, uh, to expose issues of human rights violation and also to mobilize and to lobby governments to uh, produce uh, policies that are pro women and girls, particularly the rights of women and girls and the policies that are pro human rights. So this is the work that uh, we do within the African continent and we also work within Uh, the Middle East. And of course, our project is supported by Global Affairs Canada that has been doing amazing work uh, since uh, I can mention so much of the great work that this organization, which is Journalists for Human Rights, has been doing since my time uh, in South Sudan, where we're supporting the peace process there and also supporting an agenda for human rights in South Sudan. And our work in Mali, our work in the Middle East, in Syria, in Jordan, mostly working in conflict zones where human rights violations are at the highest rise and at the receiving ends of such injustices are always women and girls. So our projects are mostly biased towards the rights of women and girls. So this is the kind of work that I'm currently engaged on. This is the kind of work that I'm passionate about, issues of human rights, issues of peace and reconciliation more broadly. As I have indicated earlier on, it is part and parcel of the continuing the legacy uh, that Nelson Mandela has left for us to try and create a world that is more, that is reconciled and the world that is developed and at peace with itself. So that is the part and parcel of uh, the legacy that I leave and the legacy that I am continuing. And this is the fight that I wage in the world in different platforms that I engage on. This is who I am, a human rights and a peace activist. Dr. Weber, thank you very much.
0: Wow, okay, first of all, it's Manju, right? Yes, <laughs> okay. <laughs> only my mother calls me doctor and only in front of other people, it seems. So oh, okay. yeah, just, just Manju. Um, so I mean, votre passion est évidente. Like it's so, your passion comes through uh, your words I'm sure you're in, in huge demand. What are you doing on a podcast from little old New Brunswick? Why did you say yes to me?
1: Well, uh, Manju, I, I have such a very, I should say I have a very soft spot for Canada as a country in its entirety. Uh, and New Brunswick as a province, I think I have a very soft spot for the province. I have uh, visited New Brunswick and I've traversed the land uh, uh the the entire province from a mountain to Fredericton to saint john's engaging with uh government officials and community leaders and trying to find ways in which we can bring about reconciliation in that particular province you know and for me mm. canada is one of those countries that has a shared history with south africa given uh, the history of the Indian Act and the history of the apartheid system in South Africa and the Indian Act in Canada. And I could easily draw parallels between those two systems of marginalization and those two systems of governance. So for me, I have such a soft spot for Canada. And more than anything else, I think Canadians are one of the kindest people in the world. I mean, I enjoyed (laughs) so much- (laughs) I enjoyed so much uh, love and respect Uh, while traveling across New Brunswick, and I've engaged with quite a lot of leaders from the indigenous communities, to government leaders, to community leaders, to young people who are passionate about reconciliation, peace, and truth and reconciliation process in that country. So for me, I'm so much passionate about Canada. In fact, I even work for a Canadian organization. Uh, which is journalist for human rights, so I have I, I have some sort of a bond that I'm developing uh, between South Africa and Canada.
0: Well, donc, uh, tu as raison les Canadiens sont spéciaux, en particulier les, uh, les brunswick uh, I might be a bit biased to say, in particular, New Brunswickers. But um, let's go back to um, you know what you said about the Indian Act. I think it might actually surprise some people. To know that uh, there is actually a connection between um, Canada's treatment of um, Indigenous people and um, and the system of apartheid. And the reason I say that is because yes, Canadians, uh, Canada's an awesome country. It's um, we have um, a lot of protections. Um, we very much present ourselves as a multicultural country. And there is some there is some truth to that. There is some accuracy to that, but sadly, there's also um, there's also a dark history. Malheureusement, uh, il y a les choses qui qui a qui a passé qui ne sont pas en langue équivalent d'un pays multiculturel. You know, there are some things that uh, that still impact us. That, um, that don't speak to a fully multicultural or uh, non-racist country. So the tendency of, of Canadians is to sort of look at countries like South Africa, in particular, prior when apartheid was in effect, and sort of like just, you know, like shake our finger and say, well, you guys need to, you know, smarten up, you need to change. And I think they would be shocked to know that in some ways Canada provided the blueprint to that so maybe you could you could you know enlighten us on that.
1: Well um, Manju, I think there are different views, contrasting views among political scientists and historians alike about uh, the parallels that one could draw between the Indian act and the apartheid regime in South Africa. But allow me to submit. A very contradictory view, and argue that in fact, what the Indian Act did was to provide a blueprint on how the majority of Black people in South Africa could be oppressed and marginalised systematically. Uh, why? Why do I say that? The basic tenets of an of the apartheid regime was to oppress. And marginalize a certain group of society on the basis of the color of their skin and on the basis of uh, who they are and to also strip them of their dignity as a human race. And that those basic tenets include land dispossession, includes denying a certain group of people the right to govern themselves the right to choose who are the leaders to lead them the right to self determination those basic tenets of the apartheid regime uh, the oppressive apartheid regime could easily be drawn from what defines the Indian Act as it is so for me It is clear that what South Africa did was actually to replicate the Indian Act as it was exercised in Canada and they replicated that particular system and they implemented it in South Africa. For instance, I'll I'll, I'll give you an example. What became known as the residential school system in Canada is what beca- is in Canada under the Indian Act is what became known as the Bantu education system, which was a very inferior system of education, a very inferior education system designed to uh, relegate a certain group of society to perpetual servitudes you know, to to second-class citizens and to also to strip them of their dignity, to strip them of their identity. What the Africanians were trying to do with the Bantu education system was to strip us of our culture, of our language, and instill a new language and a new culture into us under a new system of education called the Bantu education system, which is precisely the same system used under the residential system, which was designed to get rid of an Indian out of an Indian, you know, and to inculcate a new being, you know. So which is, uh, by so doing, the exercise, the adverse consequences of such was cultural violence, which came about as a result of the residential school system and the amount of people that have died, the young people that have died through the residential residential school system, which is very similar to what the Bantu education system was in South Africa. And if you can locate it in contemporary uh, times, and you look at at the type of education system that exists in Canada today, there is an education system for the indigenous people, and there is the education system for the settler communities. If you go to the schools for the uh, for for those who are from are uh, who are from the uh, the first nations or uh the inhabitants, the indigenous communities, let's put it in that context. Mm-hmm. their education system, their structures and the education, the education system in its entirety is very inferior as compared to the settler uh, 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 community, which is the very same thing. If you come to South Africa and you look at our education system in com- contemporary times, it's very much inferior than, the education system that is enjoyed by the settler community. By settler community, I mean white people in South Africa. Those are adverse consequences of uh, such systems as the Indian Act and such systems as the apartheid regime. And I can go on and how systemic racism continues in the structures of government which are designed to serve the interest of the settler communities if you look at how resources are distributed they are stewed along racial lines and majority of the resources are stewed along the lines of those who are settler communities and those who are indigenous communities There are they are the last to receive any assistance from government which is the very same situation in south africa so those are kind of those are consequences of such oppressive systems as the indian act and the apartheid regime so for me when i draw such parallels and giving you such example you can easily see how similar the apartheid system was to the indian act and how the apartheid system, which came into existence in 1945, was drawn, and the blueprint of such a system was drawn from an Indian act. There are, in fact, historical evidence which suggests to say that if there were leaders, apartheid leaders, who took tours to Canada to get to understand how they marginalised and oppressed the indig- indigenous communities. And those South African leaders came back and implemented that very same system in South Africa. So for me, I I, 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 I submit such a a a controversial view to say, in fact, the blueprint of the apartheid regime was an Indian act. And many people seem to disagree to that, but that is the reality. And if you look at history And also in contemporary times, there are so many similarities on the injustices suffered by the majority of black people in South Africa and the injustices suffered by the uh, uh, indigenous communities in Canada. Talking on issues of cultural violence, uh, which speaks into the language, which speaks into the identity that has been marginalized over a very long, uh, long period of time, which speak, also speaks to how resources are skewed along racial lines and which is something that is very prevalent on both societies in Canada and in South Africa as well.
0: well donc, uh, as c'est uh, vraiment une autre image de Canada. I'm sure it's, a, it's an image of Canada that a lot of people not, would not only uh, not be aware of, but would also be very uncomfortable with. Je suis sûr que de nombreux Canadiens s'ont choqués de tendre cela. One of the reasons is that nous avons jamais appris cela à l'école. So in school, um, I learned very little about colonization in general. What is South Africa doing to educate their youth and continue the work of reconciliation? Is this part of the school curriculum, for example? And I guess I should start. I should back up and say, do these schools that you're speaking of, do they still exist? Well,
1: um, because what we live in a society um, in South Africa, we live in a country where uh, racism still continues, where it has transformed itself into institutions of government. Mm-hmm. In, it, it's, became, it's became what we can call systemic racism. So it only exists in within the systems themselves. So if you are talking about the structures of government, the structures of society, how the society itself is structured, you can easily identify where white people are, are living in South Africa, where they live in affluent environment in affluent communities, vis-a-vis the black people who are still living in impoverished environments, you know, in dilapidated uh, Mm -hmm. buildings, uh, they're still living in shacks and basically in, in, in communities where their dignity is nothing that can be recognized and one example of such if you come to a province called the western cape and you go to cape town you can see a sharp contrast just divided by merely a street where in one side of the streets is an existence of an affluent suburb where white people are living right across it is an impoverished environment a community of people living in shacks and in dilapidated and inhumane conditions where they lack even basic services such as water sanitation, water and sanitation, and even difficulties to access health. So those are some of the challenges that we have in South Africa. So for me, I would say and argue to you that In fact, the reconciliation process in South Africa was aborted in 1996. What South Africa missed was an opportunity. And the challenge we have was a misconception that we can reconcile a country within five years, which was very difficult. The truth and reconciliation process should have been an ongoing process. Beyond 1994, beyond the Mandela administration, we should have continued with the reconciliation process to enable our people to understand what went wrong and how best we can reconcile as a nation. At the moment, South Africa is at a regressive mode in so far as peace and reconciliation is concerned. We're seeing the rise in racist slurs, in racism across the country. And that is something that is very alarming. In fact, South African can easily be be identified as a boiling pot. At any point in time, we are going to have a challenge of an expression of racism. In fact, we have even had episodes of an expression of such uh, 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 racism just as early as um just as a couple of months ago in 2021 june july we had a mass protest where over 32 people were killed uh black people were killed by indians which was a racist motivated ki- kind of a killing and we see this ongoing episodes of a uh, racist uh actions from one side of uh the group to the other so Insofar as reconciliation is concerned, South Africa is not reconciled. And one of the critical key tenets that would enable true reconciliation to be realized in the country is the redistribution of land. Insofar as land issue is not addressed in South Africa, we will never be able to reconcile. 80% of the land is still in the hands of the minority, the white people that stole it during the apartheid system, that stole it during the colonial era. So you can imagine Manju, a community that still lives with their land of their ancestors in the hands of those that stole it through the barrel of a gun. And you can ask yourself a question, would that community be able to reconcile when the lands, when the land of their ancestors, where their ancestors are buried, is still in the hands of the minority. 80% of the land is still in the hands of the minority in South Africa. We've never achieved the true redistribution of land in the country. As we stand, as we speak today, the question of the land question is still in the in the table of the South African Parliament where we are arguing over the uh, repossession of land and redistribution of land without compensation. Because now we've reached a stage where South Africans, majority of South Africans are saying, enough is enough, we have been begging, we have been negotiating with our fellow white South Africans to say, let's find a way to redistribute the land equally among all of us. Now we've reached a stage where we're seeing symptoms of people revolting, grabbing land by force because they're saying their land was taken to them by force. Now they're going to take their land by force. So that is, those are some of the symptoms to say There will never be a true reconciliation until the land question itself is addressed. Because if you're talking about land, you're talking about identity. If you're talking about land, you're talking about culture. If you're talking about land, you're talking about the economy. The majority of our people are are unable to participate equally into the economy of the country because such an economy, which is land, is still in the hands of the few, is still in the hands of the minority in the country. So we are unable to develop ourselves economically, we are unable to define ourselves in so far as our identity, because our identity is intractable linked to the land itself. Because this, when we speak of the land, we're speaking of the land of our ancestors, we're speaking about who we are and where we come from. So when such an identity is still trapped in history, is still in the hands, of those that stole it would never be able to reconcile. So South Africa, as it is, um, uh, unfortunately, is in a regressive mode insofar as reconciliation is concerned. And unfortunately, our leaders uh, themselves are not putting the issue of land as a priority and the issue of reconciliation as a priority. The country still polarized along racial lines as we live in it today.
0: Wow, c'est um, it's That's, that's uh, so sad. I, there's so much I want to ask you, but there is something I want to clarify. When you said um, that there was a riot uh, between Black South Africans and, and Indians, you mean East Indians, I'm assuming, or South Asians?
1: Well, South Africa is remember uh, Manjo, South Africa is one of the most diverse countries in the mm-hmm. world. We have white people, we have Black people, we have Indians who are South Africans. But obviously obviously, during the apartheid system, people were classified according races. So it was first an Indian, it was first a white person, a colored, an Indian, and a black person. So insofar as our history is concerned, even Indian themselves, they don't consider themselves as black people. They, they lean more more towards the white race than they lean towards the black race.
0: C'est That's a complicated. That's so yeah, it's a very complicated uh, kind concept of, of hierarchy. Yes, exactly. The whole concept of hierarchy, and and I actually know um, several South Asians who uh, immigrated to different countries in Africa. And there is a very from what I'm I hear from most of them in conversation is there is a very strict hierarchy in their mind of who they are and who who they are not and who it is okay to subjugate and who it is not. And it's um it's not a subject I can understand. I don't understand how um, South Asians, uh, in particular East Indians—that's my background—can be victims of colonization, and then move to another continent and um, and appreciate the results of that, co- you know, benefit. I guess is the word from from colonization. To me, that it just doesn't jive, um, and uh, it it's a it's a double tragedy. I think. But I did want to, uh, you know, come come to par apropos uh, la uh, la terre et le gouvernement. Il um, me semble comme to par de, de, de Canada et New Brunswick aussi, be, because in New Brunswick, um, a key question or a key concern with conc- reconciliation is land. Um, it has been um, a priority among our First Nations communities um, in, um, in New Brunswick and, and other places as well. But you know, I want to speak about New Brunswick. And so when you talk about the redistribution of land, what does that look like for you? Because I think a lot of New Brunswickers are asking the same question. When they hear from First Nations communities saying, "You know, we want uh, we want the land to be recognized as ours," um, what does that mean to to Black South Africans? What does that mean to you?
1: Well, um, I think uh, Manju, uh, we need to uh, begin from the premise that the land was stolen from the indigenous people in Canada. The land was stolen from the majority of black people in south africa the minute we begin to recognize that such an accident of history was an injustice then we can be able to prescribe ways in which we can redistribute the land back to their rightful owners but we also need to recognize that we, the world has now changed we have new communities that are living and residing in this land such as the settler communities so the question the question is how do we coexist as indigenous communities and settler communities and how can we how best can we redistribute land in such a way that It does not upset food security. It does not upset the the economic systems or the systems of trade among one another. How do we redistribute land in such a way that it does not upset coexistence? So those Mm -hmm. are key questions that we need to ask. Do we want to live in a world where we coexist as different groups of society, as different cultures? Of course, we want to live in a world where we coexist with one another. You know, we want to live in a world where we see diversity as our strength as opposed to seeing diversity as a challenge. So if we begin to define the kind of the world that we want to live in, the future that we want to live in, then we are going to be able to approach the question of land in such a way that it's going to enable us to live and realize the future that we want, a society that is diverse, where everyone's human rights is respected and recognized, where each and every culture is given space to bloom where our identities, where our identities intersect, where our cultures intersect, and where our diversity is perceived as a strength and as a way to move forward, where we use slogans such as, there's power in identity, there's power in our unity. So once we begin to define the future that we want to have, then we can start beginning to say, we are going to redistribute the land according to those who need the land and equally among those who live in it. If you look, for instance, in South Africa, when our forefathers were waging a struggle for liberation, they argued they had a freedom charter one of the first clause of that Freedom Charter, it said the land belongs to all those who live in it, black and white. They did not say the land belongs to the majority of black people, so therefore white people must pack their bags and return back to Europe or wherever they <laughs> came from. It right. said the land belong to all those who live in it, black and white. So the people of Canada, the Canadians, need to now begin speaking a language to say the land in Canada belongs to all those who live in it, indigenous communities and settler communities. Once we begin speaking in such terms, then we are going to find ways which are amicable, in which we can redistribute the land according to all those who need the land, so that the land is shared equally to all those that will need it. And I can guarantee you, and I am sure, the indigenous people in Canada are not arguing for the land to to belong to themselves and them alone. They want the land to be shared among all those who live in it, they want us to share equally to the, to, to the waters that the land brings us, not only to the water, to be stewed, only towards the settler communities while the indigenous communities are suffering, having no access to sanitation, mm-hmm. no access to water, for instance. I've traveled to communities in Canada where indigenous communities do not have access to water and yet it is their land. So this is what we need, this is what we're talking about when we're speaking about redistribution of land. The land has to be redistributed equally among those who live in its settler community, indigenous community. Black people in South Africa and white people in South Africa We need to share land in such a way that is not going to upset uh, uh, the economic production, in such a way that is not going to upset trade in such a way that is not going to upset food security and all the existence that we need uh, from the land that we live in. That is what we mean by land redistribution. We don't mean that the land has to be taken away from the settler communities and in in its entirety be given to uh, indigenous communities. No. What we need is the land to be shared among all those who live in it
0: well, I'm sure as as you can appreciate um I can't really I can't comment on whether or not that is um you know what indigenous people want here in Canada. I'm not of indigenous descent, um so I don't want to speak for them uh, but I do appreciate what you're saying about uh about values like. Donc, si je comprends bien, que on peut avoir l'action. Like, what, if I'm understanding you correctly, what you're saying is we need to have shared values first, and then our decisions will be made on those shared values. So, if our shared values is as, as you so beautifully put, living together, sharing. Dignity for each other, well, then our actions will follow that. Definitely. Um, Definitely. Okay. So let's talk about your identity a bit. Okay? <laughs> I mean, we have to do that, right? Yes, um, yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Okay. So I'll start. I'll start. Um, so you know when we first talked, I talked a bit about my identity. Uh, I am an immigrant. Uh, je suis Canadien aussi. Bien sûr. Je grandis uh, uh, à Nova Brunswick. So I have lived in New Brunswick for decades. Consider myself uh, from New Brunswick. But uh, my father um, lived in what is Pakistan now, so when it became Pakistan in 1948, uh, because he his he and his family were Hindus, they became refugees and they had to go to India, and this is all a result of British colonization. So you know, on Pataj Kalchas, like we share some some history there, um, and. Um, so I don't have um, a homestead, right? That that I could say is our family homestead because someone else is living there now. It's another country. Um, also, I had um, I used to say I lost my language, but I didn't lose my language. It was taken from me. So while I understand Punjabi and Hindi, I don't speak it, and that is obviously tailored or, or impacted my desire to work in anti-racism and social justice but you you Madiba have like no pun intended the granddaddy of reasons right? <laughs> so tell us what's it like to be Nelson Mandela's great-grandson I mean, is what's it like just I'm just gonna open it like that because I'm sure everyone wants to know
1: well, Manju, I am I am the descendant of uh, King Benuga from the house of Mandela, uh, coming from the kingdom of the Tembu people. So I come from a royal family. Um, within that royal family, there are five houses. I am from the last house, which is the house, ha- the laus- which is the house of. Mandela. So we are the Tembu people from the Tembu Kingdom. Uh, we speak the language called Kosa. Kosa is our language. So Siabulela uh, is one of uh, is my name uh, in my Kosa language, which means gratitude. Uh, my family was grateful to God, uh, the Creator, for gifting them with uh an individual such as me. So they were saying thank you to him when they named me Sia they said gratitude. Thank you God for such a gift. Beautiful. So I am uh I stand in the shoulders of my ancestors, Madiba, Sopicho, Yem Yem Olom Zinjaba, And what I've done there Uh, Manju was to uh, recite uh, the names of my ancestors to whom I stand uh, uh, in their shoulders as a descendant of Gubenguga, the descendant of the house of Mandela. So um, basically uh, we are the people uh, who are coming from the province of the Eastern Cape uh, from uh, a community called Mvezo, but we Our land, uh, our chieftaincy uh, was taken away during the colonial era and we were banished from our land because our chief was, our leader was resistant to the colonial system and his land was taken away. So we pushed off our land and we settled in a a settlement called Kunu now, that's where the Mandela family in their majority are based. But from where we're coming from, we're coming from there. So our chieftaincy and our land was returned to us uh, in 1994. And Nelson Mandela, who is my great-grandfather, was now appointed as the leader of the Mandela family, the chief of the Mandela family. Now we are led by his grandson, uh, Manja Mandela, and his chieftain's name is Zulevelile. Uh, Mandela, who is the chief of the Mandela family, the leader of the Mandela family. Um, Well, to be uh, a descendant of the house of Mandela, to be the great-grandson, is one of those things that comes with quite a lot of uh, responsibilities uh, Mm -hmm. uh, to be an outright uh, citizen, to contribute positively to the development of society to stand against all forms of injustices one thing that is known about uh, the mandela family is for one we are troublemakers two uh, we stand against <laughs> <I love it. laughs> we stand against all forms of injustice and uh, all forms of oppressions where there is injustice that is the fight that we are called upon as the Mandela family. That is why uh, Nelson Mandela said that the freedom of the people of South Africa is not complete until uh, the people of Palestine are freed from the apartheid, uh, from Israel apartheid. That is to say that the continuation of our struggle has to extend beyond the borders of South mm-hmm. Africa and we have to wage a struggle and stand in unison and in support of those oppressed people in different parts of the world. That is why today I speak and I stand uh, in solidarity with the indigenous people in Canada and the different communi- communities that are oppressed in that land and with the people of Palestine and different people that are oppressed in different parts of the world. So this is who we are, this is our identity. We wage struggles against all forms of injustice and being part and parcel of the Mandela family, it means that you cannot stand and idle uh, where there is uh, injustice. Uh, And if you uh, are neutral, as uh, the late Archbishop Archbishop uh, Archbishop Desmond Tutu said, if you are neutral in times of injustice, you are actually siding with the you are taking sides with the oppressor. So I refuse, as long as I live, I refuse to be counted among the oppressor. But I I want to be counted among those who wage a struggle against all forms of injustice, be it racism, be it apartheid. Uh, be it uh, political marginalization of one group by another, we stand against such. What we are fighting for is a world that is reconciled, a world that is at peace with itself. That's what it means to be part and parcel of the Mandela family. And above all that, uh, Manju, uh, education is one of those key components that Nelson Mandela himself said, that uh, education is one of the greatest weapons to which we can use to change the world. That is why I was in pursuit of education. That is why I've recently graduated with my doctorate degree in international relations and peace studies. That is a way to say, I agree with you, Nelson. Education is one way in which we can change the world. Once we arm ourselves with such tools as education, we can go far in trying to bring change into this world. We are going to go far in trying to change this world for the better. That's what it means for me to be part and parcel of the Mandela family.
0: Wow, okay. (laughs) So you're you're not only the great-grandson of uh, Nelson Mandela, you're also royalty. And also, uh, récemment recently obteni, uh, obtenir ton doctorat donc félicitations congratulations on receiving your doctorate uh, I know personally that that is no easy feat um, je suis uh, je, je suis tout à fait d'accord avec vous um, quand tu parles um, à propos le neutre Nous ne pouvons pas être neutre. We cannot be neutral. Um, you know, I, I agree with you on that. And I think that is something that's difficult for people to understand. I think for the longest time, there was this, under, this notion that there were the overt racists and then there were the anti-racists, people who were fighting overt racism, but that the vast majority of people could be neutral. That they didn't have to vocally speak out against anti-racism. And that didn't mean that they were overtly racist. pour moi, on We cannot be neutral. Um, so from what you're saying, I feel like you say the same thing. Um, how do you how do you talk to people about that um, because it is uncomfortable to be an anti-racist so, so and and an simple, you knowigu um, I know I get tired uh, je c'est la même chose pour, pour toi. are you tired does it how do you how do you have those conversations with people? Well um for me
1: um manju, I think we have the benefit of those, uh, the wisdom of those that came before us. And I think uh, for us, for me, if we draw more lessons from the previous generations, from their struggles, from their sacrifices, and from their mistakes, we are able to formulate the kind of ways in which we can wage our own struggle. I oftentimes go back in history and go back into the sacrifices and the wisdom of those that came before us to draw some lessons on how best we can articulate uh, the struggle of our times and how best we can negotiate ourselves out of the injustices and the challenges of our time into a more peaceful future that we want to develop for our generation and generations yet to come. So for instance, if I draw in some of um, the wisdoms of great leaders such as Nelson Mandela, who uh, beautifully puts it and argues that no one is born hating one another. You know, uh, uh, hate if it's something, if it, if if hate is something that has been taught and inculcated in one uh, self, it can also be something that can be unlearned because love comes more naturally than its opposite, which is hate. So if you begin to if you begin to engage people from that level, that in actual reality, you, have n- you were never born hating anyone on this earth. It's something that has been inculcated. Uh, it's something that have been socialized around. So if it's something that is taught, it can also be unlearned. You know? So if you begin to engage from that perspective, people are going to be able to be sympathetic and understanding to you. And they are going to be able to find ways to reconstruct uh, the kind of a world that you and your generations and generations yet to come want to live in. I wouldn't want to live 10, 15, 20, 30, 50 years from now to live in a world that still battles with challenges of racism. Mm-hmm. You know, I wouldn't want to live in that world. And I wouldn't I, I wouldn't be able to, to respond when my children 30 years from now ask me what daddy what did you do about racism in your own time so I must be able to account on what did we do to wage a struggle against racism so that our children so that this generation and generations yet to come don't have to bear a brand of fighting the injustices uh, of racism the injustices of discrimination so for me that is how I begin to articulate it to our own generation and say, let's begin to imagine the world where we live and we are able to coexist, where we have shared values, where we respect each other's identity, where we afford each other dignity, irrespective of the color of our skin, irrespective of our languages where we see our diversity as strength as opposed to seeing it as a weakness. So when we begin to engage from that level, people are going to be able to engage with you and negotiate ways in which we can coexist with one another. But if you are moving from a position of identifying, for instance, those who are racist, as a problem in society and not identifying racism itself as a problem because even those who are racist, they are imprisoned by hate themselves. You know, you need to be able to distinguish and remove such a venom of hate from them as individuals because they've never been born that way. So it has to be understood from that perspective that even they themselves they are imprisoned by hate. They are imprisoned by the venom of racism. So how do we best? How do we best find ways in which we can remove them from that, uh, from the chains of racism? How do we make sure that they unlearn such shackles and such challenges of racism? and come into a broader society where they can coexist with other human race, where we can see one another as one human race, which is uh, we are humans and we are one human race. So we have to find ways in which we can coexist. So for me, that is one way in which we have to look at it. And those are some of the ways in which we can find ways to negotiate ourselves outside the challenges of a racist society and be able to construct the world that we want to live in and be able to identify and define the future that we want to
0: live. So again, I guess going back to what you said, to choose those those values of dignity, of love, and the actions of social justice will follow. Precisely, precisely. Let's, uh it, it, I am speechless because uh, I'm, I'm thinking. I'm not speechless very often. Oh, yeah. um, <laughs> but just, you know, what you said about we're born with love, but we're not born with hate. I have a brand-new niece who is only three months old, and she loves everyone around her. But you're right. There is not a trace of hate. It, it's learned. And may, perhaps I know I know that. Mais j'l'oubliais quelques, quelques fois, so I know it, but I forget it. So I think it's it's important just that some, I remember yes. that. So thank you for that. Donc, um, so just in question, just have one last question for you. Yes. Um, um j'ai eu une conversation avec un autre gouvernement. Uh, qui uh, qui était intéressante de voir en un uh, un poste comme le mien et j'ai j'ai donné l'avis de uh, ok uh, premièrement parler au uh, au gouvernement de Nouvelle-Banlieue et de voir en sens de uh, les choses que marchent et les choses et les choses que ne marchent pas so recently when um, another province contacted me and they said, uh, you know, we're, we're thinking about having a position similar to yours. What advice can you give us? And, and the first thing I said was, I think you need to reach out to the government of New Brunswick, who created my position, and find out what went well, but also what did not go well. Because in the creation of my position, there were mis- missteps. I mean, it is, it is an honor to be first at something, but it also means that you get to make the mistakes first, right? And so it's a double-edged sword. So with reconciliation, you said that it, it failed in South Africa. Qu'est-ce que les choses qui, qui marchent bien, as well? like. Uh, it failed, but what were some things that, that did work? Or was there anything that did work? What advice would you give? Um, tell, us how, um, tell us how we can do reconciliation in our own country. What worked in South Africa, what did not work? What would you say?
1: Well, um, for me, there has to be a political will. and and an interest and a practical expression of such a will to bring about reconciliation in any country and in any province. And the first step of bringing about reconciliation uh, is the reason why South Africa was able to achieve a degree of reconciliation during the Mandela administration is because the Truth and Reconciliation Commission was established first, which was a a deliberate move by the government to establish an institution tasked with bringing about reconciliation in the country. And the second step was to create a platform where communities, leaders, and all sectors of society can have a platform where, where they can engage about ways in which they can reconcile, engage about what went wrong in their past, the injustices of their past. What you do when we're engaging with the injustice of injustices of their past, you are opening up the wound. The only way you can heal from such injustices from such difficult past is if we open up that wound and have a conversation about what went wrong and how best we can bring about change we can bring about reconciliation so the office such as yours has been tasked with that responsibility what needs to continue and also be applauded is the platform that your office has created such as a podcast such as this where we can engage on certain issues that pertains to systemic racism and having a conversations on devising and prescribing ways in which we can reconcile as a nation for instance we have hey throughout our conversation we have engaged on various issues and uh, we have went to such issues as the land question, for instance. And where I argue to you and say, one of the things that are preventing us from achieving true reconciliation in South Africa is the question of the land, which is even in Canada, those are some, that is, is a very critical question that as you move along, in the journey of dissecting and understanding racism, systemic racism, and trying to find ways in which the Canadian community can reconcile, the land question is always going to come up at the top Mm -hmm. of the agenda. So that means to the government that they have to find ways in which they can address such a a critical question as the land question. Racism manifests itself in society through different faces. There are different facets of racism. So as you move along and having conversations, you are going to have different communities who are exposing to you different facets of racism within their communities mm-hmm. those are some of the issues that need to be addressed and those are some of the issues as you compile your report that when you table the report to government you're going to say in new brunswick these mm-hmm. are different facets of racism that are currently existing as expressed oh
0: exactly exactly as yeah.
1: expressed by the communities and as expressed by different are sectors of communities living within New Brunswick. So these are some of the recommendation that came out of the conversation that we have had with different sectors of community. So a platform such as this is the beginning of, the healing phase is the beginning of the reconciliation phase. So for me, that is why I argued to you and said uh, reconciliation in South Africa was aborted because the report should not only ended in 1996. Four years was very short to unpack and address an issue that happened over 100 years and you want to solve it in four years, which is what South Africa tried to do and failed in doing so. It's something that we should continued, even in in the consolidation of democracy in South Africa, the truth and reconciliation process should have continued. And it should have continued to guide the government and the country on how best we can move forward and reconcile as a nation.
0: I think it's also important that um, we understand that there are different types or different understandings of reconciliation and also that we don't um, that we don't put too much pride or too much ego in what we've done so far so uh, my office you know it is the first uh, commissioner on systemic racism in New Brunswick and from what I understand the first in Canada as well I'm extremely honored to hold that role. Um, But I also know, and again, I'm not Indigenous, so I'm not speaking for Indigenous people, I'm simply repeating what I've heard, is that this is not enough for reconciliation. This is, you know, that it goes deeper than this. And something that I have been asked on many occasions is exactly what you just said. Will the recommendations for Indigenous communities be different for recommendations for immigrant communities? You know, will our histories, be recognized. Will it be different for Black communities? Et tout le temps je dis, bien sûr, oui. Mm-hmm. Um, le point c'est ici est de voir les histo, de savoir que les histoires de de de, de 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 groupes différents sont différents. And so I I work every day to recognize that uh, yes, this is a um, this is a, a monumental step. For the government, uh, and for our communities, but we cannot rest on that ego that this is, this is the um, that all other steps will come automatically. That it is a continuous work of of building relationships, and I think you know, as you said, we saw that in South Africa. So we began with saying about how South Africa learned from Canada. Um, you know, in regards to segregation, residential schools, perhaps this is an opportunity for um, for now Canada to learn from, from South Africa. Cause de continue la conversation, continue le travail, because we know that something that has taken hundreds of years is not going to be fixed you know, in, in a one mandate report or um, in a one mandate um, in, in one government's uh, work that this is a continuing conversation. Well, I wish I could continue my conversation with you. Uh, merci pour ta temps, pour ta participation. You have been extremely generous with your time. I don't even wanna know what time it is in South Africa right now. Hopefully you did not have to wake up in the middle of the night to do this. Uh, And it was such a pleasure to meet you.
1: No, thank you. Uh, Thank you very much, uh, Manju. And uh, I am very much privileged to even be invited uh, to as one of your guests to engage with your audience about ways in which we can bring about reconciliation uh, within our communities and also to uh, be able to critically engage uh, systemic racism as we know it. Because these, Manju, these are social constructs, these are things that we created ourselves. So we can also dismantle these structures of racism and create a better world where we coexist with one another, where we respect our identity. So uh, uh, where we respect, I mean our diversity. So I'm really mm-hmm. uh, 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 grateful for such a platform and thank you very much for inviting me. And uh, as I have indicated, I am such a soft spot for New Brunswick. But uh, well, you province. have to come back. No, no, definitely. <laughs> to do a tourney. Yes, definitely. In
0: we planned an author tour. after COVID, of course. Yeah, definitely.
1: I was actually, I was actually supposed to come back. Uh, my last visit, uh, where I spent a month in New Brunswick, was in twenty eighteen, and I was supposed to come back again immediately after that. But unfortunately, due to COVID nineteen. I was unable to come, so but I'm going to definitely plan a trip. the the new brun The government in New Brunswick, the different mayors I met across uh, the New Brunswick province were so receptive uh, to me, and uh, they engaged with me. and The community leaders from the First Nations, uh, Indigenous mm-hmm. communities, to settler communities, and different even the young people that I engaged with were very so much receptive of some of the arguments that I was bringing and I learned a lot as well from their cultures and I'm looking forward to come back again and thank you very much for inviting me and thank you to oh, your c- team for doing c'est such c'est a great the, work the
0: uh, pleasure is like it was my merci. pleasure Une chose que je, je, uh, um, à la fin de podcast et de voir les suggestions. Um, so, I like to suggest things to listeners because oftentimes I think we have these conversations and then people who are listening say, "Well, what can I do next? Right? Like, what what can I do? This is such a big. How can I help about reconciliation in South Africa? How can I help with reconciliation in Canada? Donc, uh, à la fin de chaque podcast, je, j'aimerais donner les suggestions pour moi uh, j'en ai deux so i have two suggestions is uh, first of all for people who haven't to read uh, the calls to action they're very readable read them and see um you know there are many that individuals can do in those calls to action uh, l'autre chose est, uh, il y a and in um, in leave um, avec le titre 21 things you you may not know or you probably don't know about the indian act Again, that's a very readable book. Uh, I think it's important that uh, people take the time to read that as well. Madiba, um, is there something that you would like to suggest to our listeners?
1: Well, uh, one thing I can say, Manj, is that as individual, we all have a collective responsibility. Uh, to bring about the change that we want to see within our community. And that begins by us being the change that we want to see. I think that is Mahatma Gandhi uh, who who, who put out that call. So be the change. Be the change that you want to see. That's all I can say. Be the change that you want to see. And the minute you are that change, you are going to begin to say, indeed, you can never be neutral in times of injustice because neutrality in times of injustice means you are siding with the oppressor.
0: I agree, I agree. Well, that's an excellent place to end. Merci encore, Madiba, c'est un plaisir de parler à vous, as this was such a pleasure. Um, you know, I I, I've been, uh, I was giddy from the moment I found out I was going to be talking to you. I was like, this is so cool. I feel like I'm meeting a rock star. So um, uh, on that, I hope you have an awesome day, evening, whatever is unfolding in front of you. À uh, pour toute uh, les, uh, l'audience, je vous souhaite une bonne journée.